everybody, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. It's our series on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Can you handle the truth? And I believe in you. I believe that you can. So open up your Bible with me to Romans chapter 5, and we'll pick up where we left off. And the last verse that we really looked at was Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where St. Paul says, Hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that theological virtue of hope is something that we need in this life until we get to heaven, until we get into that life with the Trinity. And the question is, how exactly is this love of God poured into our hearts? And so many people doubt the love of God for them. We need to really make it personal. And Scott Hahn, his commentary on Romans, really talks about this, how the love of God being poured out really is given to us in baptism, but it was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament as well. Think about Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, where God says this, I will pour out water upon the thirsty ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring. And then in the prophet Joel, this is a very famous verse, in Joel chapter 3, verse 1, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, upon all people. Now, when did this actually happen? It happened. It was really fulfilled, this prophecy of Joel's. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, we're talking about the Feast of Pentecost. And in Acts 2.17, we read these words where St. Peter is really quoting Joel here. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And it goes on. And really, Peter is explaining what's exactly happening here. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit long foretold and is finally here. And then we have also Ezekiel chapter 36, and this is a really clear prophecy of what's happening in our time, the New Testament age. And really, we, you and I are living in the New Testament age, extended. So I guess you could say it's uh, part two of the Acts of the Apostles, what, 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 not, what went on in the church from, from then until now. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26, says this, God speaking here, I will sprinkle clean water over you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And this is exactly what happens to us when we are baptized. This is so unbelievable because again, when Pentecost takes place in Acts chapter two, Peter said, you know, people are just amazed by this gift of the spirit. And they're like, what should we do? And Peter says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And this is exactly what's going on here in Romans chapter 5, when St. Paul writes, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when was the Holy Spirit given to us? In baptism. As that water was poured over our heads. That was a symbol of the deeper spiritual reality that was happening, that the Holy Spirit was, in fact, being infused into our very beings. And that's where we left off last time. So let's pick it up now in the very next verse, 
Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 6. Paul writes, While we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. Now, this this is a very, very important passage from St. Paul here. If you're a football fan like me, you're very familiar with bedsheet banners that are hung in the stands. People hold them up, especially during field goal attempts or point after a touchdown (laughs) Uh, They hold them up behind the uprights so that people can see them watching on TV at home. And these bedsheet banners have this biblical verse on them, maybe the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the whole verse isn't written on the bedsheet, of course. You need a pretty big bedsheet for that. But it's just John 3.16. Well, those who do that, those who use bedsheet banners as a method of evangelism, could just as well have used a verse that we just read in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, because it essentially says the same thing as John 3.16. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is such an important truth. And as we talked about last time, people do doubt the love of God for them, and they they shouldn't. Uh, Just a moment's reflection uh, should set us straight on that. Because just, just think about all of the things that God has already done for us to get us into a relationship with him, to get us reconciled with him. First of all, he planned it from all eternity. (laughs) This goes back to the Garden of Eden. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Adam's big sin, uh, his fall from grace, original sin, being foisted on the world. Paul's going to talk about that in just a minute. But after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God had already started to kick the plan into motion to save the world through Jesus Christ. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. How the Lord predicts that the Savior will come who will crush the head of the serpent. And so this is something that we're going to look at in just a minute, but he's planned it from way back when humans first fell into original sin and all of salvation history had to be worked to the point of the incarnation. What does St. Paul say in Galatians chapter 4? And there's so many similarities between the arguments that Paul's making in Romans here and and the ones that he makes in his letter to the Galatians. And I'm just going to flip open to Galatians chapter uh, 4, verses 3 through 5. Let's check this out. Another famous passage from Paul. Paul writes, 
when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. And this is a powerful passage because it really encapsulates a lot of what St. Paul has been saying thus far in Romans. The human race has become slaves to sin. And God has now set us free through the death and resurrection of his son. We become sons and daughters in the son, in Jesus Christ. But this this passage uh, in Galatians, when Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth the Son. He's really talking about the time of the incarnation. And so all of salvation history really was getting to that point of the incarnation. And think about all Christ did for you and for me. He suffered the passion, the agony in the garden, blood dripping from his brow, the, the scourging at the pillar. And I, I think I just have to mention the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And if, you, if you've seen that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The hardest scene to watch in that movie. The scourging scene. But that is, I think, an accurate historical representation of what Christ went through for you and for me. The carrying of the cross, being nailed to it, being raised up, and his blood dripping into the sand. He did all of this for you. And you think he's going to let go of you so easily? (laughs) No, that is not the case. The point of this is that it's easy for people to, if they're not in a relationship with God, to wonder whether or not God loves them. But sometimes, even for those who are in the church, even those who've had a relationship with Christ for many, many years, decades even, we go through these periods where we think somehow, some way, God has stopped loving us. No, it's a very human way of thinking. That's why St. Paul says, look, we were helpless. And yet Christ still saved us. He says, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, one will dare even to die. It's very difficult uh, even to die for a good person, let alone die for an enemy. Think about the courage that it takes, even for soldiers to die for a a holy and a righteous cause. Uh, another movie that's that's very difficult to watch at times is Saving Private Ryan, and that that incredible scene at the beginning of the film, the end of World War II, D-Day, Tom Hanks and all his companions, they are landing on the shores of Normandy, and, and it, it's just a it's just a very visceral, very real depiction of the sacrifice, uh, very often with with their lives uh, that these young men made to defeat the enemy. And, and to give their lives for, for each other, to try to save not only Private Ryan, but, but everybody uh, from Nazi tyranny, the courage to die for what they knew was right. But it still took an awful lot of courage under fire to be able to do that. Now, giving your life for an enemy, for an evil man like Hitler, forget about it. Somebody who's an enemy of God, an enemy of the people of God. He's, he's destroying the covenant people of God, trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. 
But this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He died for us who were not looking for him, who in many ways were actively opposed to him through our sins. And this is what St. Paul says in verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies of his. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What's the wrath of God? St. Paul's talking about the day of judgment. Now, this is exactly how he saves us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. So what Paul is essentially saying is this. Look, if Christ was willing to die for you before you ever thought about repenting, and in fact, he, he, he kicked this plan into motion in the book of Genesis before any of us were even conceived or born. If he was willing to go to all these lengths to get you back into the grip of his grace, he will not let you go now. He won't. The only way you can get out of his grip is if you yourself let go. Think, think about Jesus in the gospel. When Peter was walking on the water, and he began to sink, he began to drown. As long as he was keeping his eyes on Christ, he, he, could, he could do it. But as soon as he noticed what was around him, he noticed the sea. He, and, and, and really the sea in the scriptures is a symbol for evil, sin, all the monsters, the beasts in Revelation come out of the sea. He, he sees it. And maybe in a sense, he sort of saw his own sinfulness and, and he began to sink. And Christ reached out his hand, grabbed him and saved him. Now, if Peter had let go of Jesus' hand, he would have drowned. And that's the only way that we can get out of the grip of his nail-pierced hand. You, you can let go of him, but the only one who can separate you from the love of Christ is you. And that happens when we willfully commit these mortal sins and we cut off the relationship with Christ. But Christ will never let go of you. He will always do his part. And you can always get back. Even if you did let go of his hand, tragically, you can, you can grab onto it again in the sacrament of reconciliation. But don't doubt his love for you and don't doubt his power to keep you in his friendship, to keep you in his grace. So that, that, that's, that's a crucial thing. Uh, to mention here. Another thing that I want you to see here is look at verse 10. This is something really important here. Paul writes, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Now, I don't know if you've ever been asked this question from a non-Catholic Christian friend, or maybe even a stranger. The question is this, have you been saved? And as Catholics, we, we often don't know how to respond to that question. And that's a question that was uh, posed to me very often by my very sincere, very well-meaning, they were looking out for my good, my fundamentalist Baptist friends. And, and uh, this was during the time when I was kind of outside the church. I'd kind of wandered away. And by that question, Here's what they meant when they asked, have you been saved? They thought 
that salvation was sort of a once-for-all transaction, a one-shot deal. You pray something called the sinner's prayer. You ask Jesus to come into your heart, forgive your sins, and then all is well for all eternity, no matter what you do in the future. Now, that's maybe a gross oversimplification of, of, of that point of view, but a lot of Christians do go by this. Well, St. Paul would, would not answer the question the way that they might want it answered. The question, have you been saved? Here's what St. Paul would say, according to Romans chapter 5. He would say this, yes, I have been saved. And yes, I am being saved. And yes, by God's grace, I will be saved. That's the hope. That is the hope. That's the theological virtue of hope. And we, we do need that because we don't have final possession yet. We can still let go of God's hand, as I said, through mortal sin. We don't want to do that. But there, there is a past element to salvation for sure, but it's also a present reality and a future hope. Well, think about this, this idea of I have been saved. This is the initial justification that we've been talking about and St. Paul's been talking about in Romans. Where do we get this? Through baptism, as we talked about earlier in today's program. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, we read this. And Peter's talking about here Noah, the ark, eight persons in the ark saved through water. Here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Peter writes, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the initial justification. Salvation brings us into a relationship, but it's also a present reality as well. As St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, let's check this out. What does he say here? He says this, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are what? Being saved. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's a, it's a current process. It's still happening, but it's also a future reality as well that we hope to possess. And so we don't want to have the sin of presumption, but we do have confidence in God's grace. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Now, here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So this refers, obviously, to this future element of salvation, the second coming of Christ, the definitive uh, destruction of evil and all that causes human beings to be tempted to sin, that's going to be done away with. The new heavens, a new earth, as it says in the book of Revelation. So the proper answer to that question, are you saved? Have you been saved? Well, St. Paul would say, well, I have been saved. I am being saved, and I hope to be saved in the future. Past, present, and future reality in Jesus Christ. We'll have much more on Romans in the next episode of The Faith Explained, but it's time. It's that time. You know what time it is to open up the Q&A mailbag. Let's do it together. Okay, as we open up the mailbag today, I want to remind you that you can send your question to me. I'll try to get it on air and answer it to the best of my ability. 
you can send an email to me at faith at relevantradio.com. F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Or you can find me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And this question comes to me from X, formerly known as Twitter. Mark uh, wrote to me saying this. Hi, Kale. As I listened to your Roman series on the Faith Explained show, I wonder what happened to the Gentiles prior to Jesus. Are they doomed to hell according to Catholic views? And what about the Jews today? Okay, so multifaceted question there, Mark. Um, Really appreciate that. Well, what happened to the Gentiles prior to the coming of Jesus? Um, Well, it depends. (laughs) And one of the things that the Catholic Church teaches is simply this, that God has always acted the same throughout salvation history. Now, if you look at uh, the ending of the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that Jesus says in Mark chapter 16 is this, and I'm just going to look it up for you really quickly here. And this is really Mark's version of the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel. In Mark chapter 16, beginning with verse 15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Okay, so this is an important verse because the Catholic Church has always said that you do need to be baptized to be saved. However, not everybody is able to be baptized in the normative way. Now, what is the normative way of baptism? Of course, it's baptism of water and the Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that one must be born again of water and the Spirit. And that happens, of course, when we are baptized. As we've been talking about in our series on Romans, God pours out his love and his spirit through us through baptism. And so everybody has to be baptized somehow. Well, if you're not baptized by water and the spirit, what are, is there any other way? And there is. There's something called baptism of desire. The other one is baptism of blood. That's martyrdom. And the church has always taught that if anyone gives their life for Jesus Christ, even if they have not been baptized, they go straight to heaven. If they've shed their blood, they've given their life for Christ, the shed blood serves as their baptism. And they bypass purgatory, go straight to heaven. How about that? Of course, uh, that's that's you know that's not necessarily something you're looking for. And God is the one who, who makes martyrs and, and gives you the grace to do it. Uh, there have been many episodes in church history where people tried to take martyrdom unto themselves and they chickened out or they, they gave up the faith, they apostatized. You don't want to do that. But this baptism of desire, really, Mark, answers your questions about the Gentiles. What happened to the Gentiles prior to Jesus? Well, it depends. As, as Paul talked about at the beginning of Romans, it is technically possible for a Gentile to fulfill the will of God through being obedient to natural revelation, uh, to one's conscience. The commandments are are really given through one's conscience. Now, your conscience can be blunted, and the Gentiles, without supernatural revelation given to the people of God, they wouldn't know the commandments, but they would know something about God. Everybody knows some truth about God, just like everybody in the world gets some form of sunlight. If you're living in the North Pole, not so much. If you're living in Greenland, you don't get super great suntans, but everybody gets a little bit of sunshine. Everybody knows something about God, even if it's just from creation itself. And the question is, 
Are you obedient to the truth that you know? And so as long as these Gentiles were obedient to the things about God that they did know, the truth that they did know, God knows their hearts. If they don't have the missing pieces of information, that's not their fault. Uh, it might be our fault for not evangelizing the Gentiles, but that, that's a whole other story. So the question would be, were they obedient to the truths that they did know about God from creation? They're thinking, yes, there must be a powerful God out there, as it says in Psalm 19. Not that they would know Psalm 19, but you get the picture. Now, if they were given more truth about God from a missionary, for example, they were to <laughs> discover a copy of the scriptures, and they found more truth about God, and then they rejected it. That's a bit of a different story. That's a bit of a different story because then they're, they're getting more truth and they're saying no to that truth. But uh, as long as they're obedient to the truths that they do know, which is, uh, they may not have much information to go on, that's enough to get them in. Now, your question about uh, the Jewish people, what happens to Israelites? Well, we're going to deal with this later in the letter to the Romans. That's a huge part of the, the letter in Romans chapter chapter 9 through chapter 11. And 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 really the 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 main point that Paul says here which is kind of a shocking claim. He says all Israel will be saved. This is Romans 11 verse 26. But what does he mean by this? Who is all Israel? Uh, number 1 and and how is all Israel saved? And, and we'll deal with this in more detail when we get there. Is Paul talking about spiritual Israel? That is how the church is the new Israel. And of course, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who have come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Or does he mean that ethnic Israel will be saved? It doesn't mean that necessarily every single individual Israelite will be saved. Some have chosen to do dastardly deeds and reject God's ways. I do think he is talking about the ethnic people of God, Israel. And I'll get into more of that when we get there at that section of Romans chapter 9 through 11. So that's it for our Q&A session today. That's all we have time for today. But thank you for that question, Mark. I want to remind you once again that you can send me your question. I'll try to get it on air. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. You can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark. Now, I will see you later today, or at least we won't see each other, but you will hear me at least 5 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio, live on the Kale Clark Show, and t- tomorrow, hopefully, God willing, on the Faith Explained. So until then, if you've missed anything, check out the podcast on the Relevant Radio app, and I'll catch you in the next one. God bless you.